Uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 27. We have one verse today as we continue our series in what we believe. I've titled this particular message, uh, We Believe God Created Us Male and Female in His Image. Or you could state it that God created us in His image, male and female. It's the same thing there, but that's what we believe because that's what this verse says. And so I've got a lot to go over, a lot of application that I want to bring to you because I believe this particular verse affects your worldview as much as any other verse in all of Scripture. When you start thinking about the fact that, number one, God created, when you start thinking about the fact that God created us two in His image, and three, that God created us male and female, there are a host of countercultural implications for us and how we view the world and how we live out our faith in the world just in this one verse. And so it is one verse, but I'm still gonna ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. It is as if God himself were speaking to us, and so we wanna stand in honor of that as I read to you Genesis 1, 27. It says this, so God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Dear Lord, as we talk about this verse today, Father, I pray that you would control my thoughts, the words that come out of my mouth. I pray that everything that is said, everything that is done this day will be glorifying to you. That is our purpose and our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Today, I have three points for you that I want to walk through. The three points jump out of the text. It is first that God created. It is second that God created in his image. It is third that God created in his image, male and female. Those three points all coming out of our particular text here are one verse, and we start out with number one, God created. You you can see where I get this from. It's mentioned three times in this one verse. It says in the verse, God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created them. It flips the order so that you can understand and see the implications, the repetition, And then he says that the following, male and female, he created them, ending the same verse with that. Three times in this one verse, it says God created. It's as though we were sending a text message and we wanted to make sure the point got across, so we used emoticons or triple exclamation points. Anybody ever done that to get your point across? My wife has. I try not to use emoticons too frequently because I think it deduces man points, but it's as if we were increasing all of that information to say this is important. If this were a rapper's world, it would be as though God said, I created, dropped the mic, and walked off the stage. It's emphasis. He's saying here, God created, and he doesn't just say it once. He says it three times. Think about the importance of understanding that God created versus an evolutionary theory that says we were just the highest evolved animal. We talked about this a little while back, so I'm not going to belabor the point, but I do want to make sure that you understand God created us. He didn't just create us. He created us as the pinnacle of all creation. God used words to speak the universe and the stars and everything else into existence. And when it comes time to form man, he forms man from the dust of the earth as though a potter were taking clay and forming a masterpiece. And he even has a consultation before he does it within the Godhead to say, let us create man in our image and he creates male and female in the image of God. Genesis 2.7 states that when he formed man, he formed him, and you get that imagery there as though he is creating a masterpiece. Not that we should take pride in ourselves, but to display his image and his likeness and his glory. And so the logical question then follows, why did God create us? 
Well, if you look at any of the catechisms, if you look throughout history at what people have said, the answer of why God created man, why did God create you, is for his own glory. So you start thinking about that, and immediately perhaps your reaction would be, well, isn't that pretty selfish? God created us for his glory. But when you understand that God is the pre-existent being that has always been, there never was a time that God was not, and God, out of the overflow of his love, creates humankind, not because he needed relationships, but because he wanted to display his character and his nature, God is the only one worthy of glory. We are not worthy of glory in and of ourselves. We only reflect the glory of God. And so God here creates for his glory. The Bible's clear on this. I'm gonna take you through a list of verses. The first verse I have for you is Isaiah 43, seven. It says, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah 48, nine through 11, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? And notice the jealousy of God here in this verse over his own glory, where he says, my glory I will not give to another. And you understand the implications of the Bible talking about pride coming before the fall there. You look at Romans nine seventeen, and it says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Matthew five sixteen. in the same way, we are to let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? See your good works and talk about how great you are. See your good works and talk about you as a person. No, it's to see your good works and then to give glory to your father who is in heaven. John 12, 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Acts 12, 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod. You remember the speech where Herod was walked out and he was giving his speech there and everybody said it is though a God himself is speaking and Herod accepted that praise. And in the book of Acts, it says immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That should strike a little bit of terror in us when we take glory that rightfully belongs to God and we pridefully and selfishly take that glory as though we have done something that is worthy of other people to, to lavish praise upon us. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Peter 4, 11, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Philippians 2 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Revelation 21, 23 is striking 
and the fact that we have no need for a sun or a moon to shine, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. We have been created for God's own glory. We have been created then to reflect his character and his nature in such a way that brings glory to God. This one truth has life-changing implications for us. Think about this, to understand why you are here on this earth, why you are created. You are not created for your own sake or for your own rights or for your own works or for your own selfish implications. You are created with a purpose by God. The creator of the universe has specially formed you for his glory and for his purposes. So how do we apply this to our life? I have several applications just to go through quickly for you on this particular point. If we are created for God's glory, then first, we don't have to try so hard to please mankind. You feel it just like I do. You wanna be light. Sometimes you will say things that are foolish just because you want people to like you. You will do things that are foolish just because you want people to like you. You will have thoughts in your mind that are not godly thoughts. You will have things that go through your behavior patterns that are not good because you want people to like you. You want people to say good things about you. You want people to think good thoughts about you. But if we understand that we have been created to give praise and glory to God, that we have been created for his purposes and not for our own, then that means we don't have to try so hard to please men. We just need to try to please God. Think about the implications and how freeing that is for life. The smallest thing that we do that brings glory to God is more important than the largest thing we do in human perspective that brings glory only to us. When we take glory, rather than giving it to God, we are robbing God of what is rightfully his. I try to think of a good illustration over Thanksgiving for this. And over Thanksgiving, what does everybody watch on TV? Football, you got it. So think about a football game. You could think about a game where, I don't know, maybe the team's not that good or maybe the team's down by 30 or 40 points. And when the team's down by 40 points, all of a sudden a player makes a good tackle, a sack, runs a touchdown, gets an interception or something. And that one player, even though his team's down by 40 or 50 points, starts acting like an idiot on the field, celebrating, pounding his chest, talking about everything he does good. What's our thoughts when a guy does that? Have you looked at the scoreboard? You're getting crushed. Why are you celebrating like you just won the World Series or you won the Super Bowl when your team's losing so badly and you're being beaten so badly? And everybody looks at that guy and thinks, what a jerk. Perhaps nobody says it to him because he can bench press three times as much as we can and he's faster and stronger and bigger. But we think of a guy that acts in that particular way, that's not good. That's not a good example. That guy is wanting to take the glory for his individual accomplishment and ignoring the team's accomplishment. He's focused on himself. He's self-centered. And what the Bible is saying to us by the fact that God has created us for his glory is that we should not be self-centered. We should not be focused on ourselves. We should be humble because everything we have, God has given us. So in everything we do that is worthy in any way or any sort of praise, we should reflect that praise back to God because it is God who deserves the glory, God who deserves the praise. And so this is freeing So how then do we bring the most glory to God? I like what John Piper says on this. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Are you satisfied in God? 
For you to be satisfied in God and for Jesus Christ to be enough for you and for your life is a freeing realization. That for you to be satisfied in who you are in Christ and your relationship with God means that you don't have to keep up with the Joneses. You don't have to please other people. For you to be satisfied in God means that you take joy in what God has given you, the tasks, the responsibilities, the obligations. You take joy in who God is in that communal relationship with him. The first point from this text is that God created. He created you for a purpose. We understand our purpose. We can live our life with freedom. There's a second point here is that God created us in his image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. He repeats that God created three times in this one verse, twice in this verse. He says, in his own image, in the image of God. And so this as is if a professor came to you and said to you in a lecture, highlight this, star this, this is gonna be on the test. He mentions it twice. It's repetition. It's important. It's something we need to pay attention to. So we immediately then ask, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, there's some discussions amongst theologians and writers that go on and take place in this, and some will argue that it's substantive. Others will argue that it's it's a function that we do as functional. Others will argue it's relational. But one of the most important verses, I think, to helping us understand this is Genesis 5, 1 through 3. It's very closely related to the Genesis 1, 27 passage we're looking at. And it says in Genesis 5, 1 through 3, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. You see the references back to Genesis 1, 27 there. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Wayne Grudem says that the image of God basically is that man is like God and represents God. You think about this verse where it talks about Seth being like Adam and you think about an illustration that immediately comes to mind. When you have a child, when you have a baby boy or baby girl, that baby boy or girl reflects in some way the image of the parents, reflects the image of the mother or the father. There's a slight resemblance perhaps when you first look at a child that comes out that you could say, oh, maybe that nose kind of looks like mom or dad or maybe the ears or, but when a baby is a baby, there's not very much reflection that you could say, this is identical to that. But as the child grows, as time develops, as the parents have influence upon that child, even with adopted children, as they are in a family, they begin to take on the characteristics. They begin to take on the nature. They begin to reflect the qualities of the parents so that often you will hear it said, he acts just like his dad does. She acts just like her mom does. How many of you have heard somebody tell you before that you act just like one of your parents? Raise your hand so I can see. Just about everybody across the auditorium. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes maybe not. I look at my own children and I see things they do. And at times it's a blessing because I see something they do and I think, yeah, it's pretty cool. At times they do something and they act just like me. And I think to myself, I need to work on that. Because what they're reflecting at that particular moment is not necessarily something that I want them to reflect, but I see them behaving in a certain way that's just like me, whether that's my son burping at the dinner table and saying, excuse me, from Jar Jar Binks, which I think is pretty funny, but it's probably going to be a bad habit one day when we're eating in the 
presidential dining room or something in front of guests that don't know us, or whether I see it as an act of kindness that one of our children does, which typically reflects more of their mom than of me, but I still see it, and I think to myself, there's a reflection of the image, there's a reflection of the nature there. And being created in the image of God means to us that as children of God, we should constantly desire to reflect God's image and God's likeness in a greater way that we have been created in his image and likeness for those purposes so that we could reflect that. Here we also see, and we also have to answer the question, what, what about the fall? What happened in the fall? Did we lose the image of God? Is it completely gone? And the answer to that is no, it is distorted, but it is not completely gone. Genesis 9, 6 is the verse we would look at for that. After the flood and after Noah and after the boat lands, and it says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. If the image of God had been completely lost and at that point, there would be no reason to focus back on how God was created or how God created man in his own image. And so here we see that we still retain it, even though it is somewhat flawed, even though that in our sinfulness, we recognize that our sinful actions do not accurately reflect the glory of God. We recognize that, that God sent his son to redeem us from being in bondage to that sinful nature that did not reflect the glory of God, that sanctification is a process as we learn, as we spend time with God, as we read his word, we meditate upon it, we memorize it, we more accurately reflect the character and the nature of God as we grow in Christ And there's a point here for you to make sure you take note of. The more time you spend with somebody, the more you act like that person. Be careful who your friends are. Be careful who you hang out with. Be careful that you don't hang out with people in an effort to help them and then end up reflecting the negative characteristics that they may pull you down with. Be careful who you're spending your time with. And then on the flip side of that, do you spend enough time with God so that you are reflecting God's nature and God's character so that you're spending enough time in the word so that you can see in your own life, your thoughts changing, your mind being renewed, your actions coming into service to God to reflect his character and his nature and to bring glory to him. Where are you spending your time? There's some other verses that relate back to the image of God as well. Matthew 22, 21. Jesus is talking and and somebody comes up to him and they they say to him, do we have to pay taxes to Caesar? And, you know, we really, if we could change any verse in the Bible, uh, we would really want to change this. It would be really great if Jesus said, no, you don't have to pay taxes, right? If Jesus said, no, just rebel against that, don't ever pay your taxes and you'll be godly. But he didn't. He, he said, hold out the coin. He held out the coin, and when he looked at the coin, he said, whose image or whose likeness is on the coin? And Matthew twenty two twenty one gives his response, and they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. There's an implication here, though, that if the coin bears the likeness of Caesar, then Caesar has ownership of that possession. It bears his likeness. The flip side of that, though, is that if God has imprinted his likeness on all men and women, then we belong to God. We bear his likeness. We bear his image. And so in that, we owe our very lives to God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If you want to know what God looks like, God, the invisible God, you remember from catechism study or from learning basic theology, does God have a body? No, God is spirit. He has no body like we do. 
How do you see what the invisible God looks like? Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, Colossians tells us. So we look to Jesus. You wanna know what God's like? Look to God's word, look to Jesus. So we see there the image of God. The practical applications of this verse are astounding. We are not just more complex animals. We are human beings created in the image of God. Being made in God's image entrusts us then with responsibility and confers upon us dignity. On those moments when you think, where's my value, where's my worth? Your value or your worth as a human being is not in what you contribute to society. That ends in some bad moral judgments. Your value or your worth is that you are created in the image of God. Think about that. God created you in his image. You can have no greater sense of value or worth than to know that the God who owns it all, who created it all, who sustains it all, created you as a special creation for a special purpose in his image. He formed you specially. How does this apply to us? Just think about the ways. The poor. Do we care about the poor the way we should? They too are in the image of God. Sex trafficking, prostitution, pornography, abuse, slavery, autism, mentally or physically challenged, the elderly or the unborn, our personal concern for the orphan or our personal concern for the immigrant, all people groups around the world. If everyone is created in the image of God and everyone has worth and value because God created them to in his image, how does that affect the way we interact with other people? Honestly, the application of this verse makes us uncomfortable at times because our own emotions, our own thoughts may betray us. I'm trying to highlight a couple of different applications for you today than what we have talked about this semester. So let me just mention autism. Autism has increased by 119.4% from 2000 to 2010. More than 3.5 million Americans live with an autism spectrum disorder. One in 68 children will have some form of autism. When you're out, as I was just the other day, and you encounter a mom with children and one of the children has autism, how do you respond? It's the first thought that comes into your mind. Is it that you want to make that child feel loved and welcome because that child is created in the image of God? Or is it that you want to step away or stand back because you're not sure what to do or how to react and you feel awkward and you just feel like you can't do anything? We should recognize that if one in 68 children are impacted with autism, then you have parents all across our country who have children that have autism or some form of fashion of autism, Asperger's or otherwise. And those parents, do they feel comfortable coming to a church to know that they're loved and that people are okay putting up with a child that may not fit into our social norms and may not act just like we think children ought to act? Think about that. Their value or their worth is not determined by how well they fit into what we think is normal in society. It's that they were created in the image of God and that God created them and that God loves them just as much as he loved you and me, and that God sent his son to die on a cross just as much for them as he did for you or for me. Think about the elderly. Physician-assisted suicide is in the news. It's one of the things that your generation, my generation, we're gonna have to deal with. 
Physician-assisted suicide argues that it's for dignity, that it's for human rights, the right to die. What it fails to consider is that we have all been created in the image of God and that life has worth from beginning to natural end, from conception to natural end. It fails to account for Psalm 139, which says that God formed all of our days even before any of them were in existence. And I encourage you to think through the implications of this because while society will start the argument off with it's their right to die, it's their right to have dignity, that right will soon turn into the fact that these people are no longer productive to society, we should get rid of them, we should kill them, and then we end up with a genocide that takes place called euthanasia. It may start with a person wanting a right to take their own life, but you just wait. It won't be long. It will be in our lifetimes that we see people start killing others just because they're a drag on the economy, just because they're a drag on society. You could think about the human race. I mentioned this briefly last time, so I'll mention it briefly again here, but biblically speaking, there is only one race. It's the human race. So next time you're filling out that form and it asks you what race are you, you can put human down. They probably will tell you to pick another answer, but you can put human down just to give them a hard time and share the gospel with them when they challenge you on it. We should understand that we all go back to Noah. We all go back to Adam. We are all created from one blood, from one race. The word the Bible uses is ethnos, ethnicity, people groups. Uh, Here we have different people groups. And I want to draw this because this is something I've been working through as well. We often, when we talk about issues of race, we want to point to, to a specific group that we deal with. But, but what the Bible understands and means here is that all people are created in God's image and created by God. And that means it's everybody. That means when we go on mission trips, we don't go on mission trips because we think we're better than other people and we're going to teach them how to live like we do. We go on mission trips because we value the fact that they are created in the image of God and there's a savior that died for them and we wanna share the truth of the gospel with them and we wanna make sure that God receives praise and glory from all people groups. When we look out at the world and we see different ethnicities like those who may be Hispanic or Japanese or German or Chinese or African or in our modern context, even Arab. When we look at somebody and see them as Arab, do we immediately in our personal relationship with them shy back and think I need to stay away from that person? Or do we reach out to them because we realize they too are created in the image of God? How do we respond? Now, I'm not talking about governmental relations and keeping borders safe and all of that. I'm talking about you personally in your relationship when you interact with another individual. How do you respond? God created all humanity. God created all humanity in his image. That changes everything. The final point for today is that God created male and female. God gloriously created men and women equal yet different. Aren't you glad that men and women are equal? Aren't you glad that men and women are different? If you're not glad for that, just go to Brock. I I, I don't mean anything bad about you guys that live in Brock. I'm sure your dorm rooms look just like my dorm room when I was a single guy. That's why I got married. You're gonna come to the house on Thursday night and it's gonna have decorations and it's gonna have lights and it's gonna smell good. It's gonna be clean. None of those are my strengths. I am extremely thankful 
that God created us different. My wife has incredible strengths that I don't have. I'm incredibly thankful for all of her strengths. And you get to see some of those on Thursday night, like Oreo balls. Two ways to take this. God created us male and female. He did so intentionally. He didn't do so by accident. He did so for a reason. What's the reason? Perhaps it's to drive us towards community. Perhaps it's because it reflects the Trinity and that they are equality and yet differences within the Trinitarian Godhead. And so perhaps it's a reflection of the Godhead as he did so. He blessed that union and then he said, go forward, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. God looked at all that he had created, including the fact that he created us male and female, and he said it is very good. So men and women are equal. Let me start there. What does this mean for us? This means that we should fight against ungodly male chauvinism. Let me say this, picking on the guys a little bit today, but only because I love you. If you are a guy and you're in this room and you believe that God has given you a sword called maleness or manhood that you can wield in life and you can say you are the dominant species, you are the dominant person and that you have authority to rule, you do not understand the first thing about being a godly male. Not the first thing about being a godly male. God has called us as men in that marriage relationship to lead as Christ died for the church. That's not a sword you wield. It is a responsibility that you bear. It is an obligation. It is a burden. It is glorious, but it is something that you must bear. And there is no room for ungodly male chauvinism. We must also fight against a culture of rape or sexual assault, not on this university's campus. But if you were to look at some of the studies or some of the the newspaper articles at one university in New York, 15% of the female freshmen are raped while they're incapacitated with alcohol. And now there's something to be said there, but I won't go there today about the wisdom of alcohol restraint. But here, I want to focus on the fact that 15% of those women have been raped. Rape, sexual assault, verbal abuse is not something that will be tolerated on this campus in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And if anything happens to one of our ladies on this campus, your first phone call is to the police because we will deal with it publicly, but your second phone call should be to Teresa Clark who handles our Title IX coordination on campus and you can find all of that information on your website. But guys, I wanna say to you, it is our obligation to protect the ladies. It is our obligation never to mistreat in any way or to demean a lady. And I understand that women can deceive and that women can also uh, trap a guy or lure a guy into something. But in our society, it's one in five women that have been raped. And if you are in the room and you have gone through that on behalf of all men, I apologize. That is not godly leadership. That is not what God created us to do. That is not the way he designed everything. That should not happen in this day and age. You think about gender side in India and China. There are 100 to 200 million girls that have been aborted in China or India due to gender side. And what that is is that they want a male so that they can help take care of them when they get older. So if they have a female, they will abort the baby or they will get rid of the infant. They will, they will desire to have just a boy. So there's 120 boys to every girl in that society. This is a tragedy. 
you think about even the females that survive in that particular society. They, they walk around knowing that they are not valued to the degree that the men are valued. And this is something we should fight against. You think about the economic collapse of Greece and the sexual exploitation that's going on. There are 17,000 prostitutes in Greece. The cost of prostitution and what has taken place with the economic collapse is now fallen to the price of a sandwich for sexual prostitution. It's estimated that it's two euros for prostitution in Greece. This is one of the reasons we should be worried about economics and we should be worried about human flourishing is because when humans don't flourish, bad things happen and we need to reflect the glory of God. You think about using strippers or prostitutes to recruit basketball players and how ungodly that is in our society and yet it still occurs. And on this campus, one particular application that I wanna drive home is that I expect you to respect our female faculty members every bit as much as you respect our male faculty members. I'm gonna say that again because I've heard from some of them that some of you don't. You should respect our female faculty members every bit as much as you respect our male faculty members. Men and women are equal and God has gloriously created us this. Girls, if you are dating a guy, courting a guy, hanging out with a guy, whatever you wanna call it, if you are doing that and you see this guy and he treats his mom badly and he treats other women badly, but he treats you great, take note because it's only a matter of time until he treats you the same way he treats his mother. And if he doesn't treat his mother well, he's not gonna treat you well either. Take note of those things and how a guy treats people in those relationships. And men, while I'm on it, let me just say, be a man, step up, be courageous, be brave, be strong, do all things in love, and ask a girl out, why not? Even if you fail 50 times, if you succeed 51, that might be the one. It might happen. I'm just saying, ask a girl out. I'm going to have to get on the girls at some future message. All right. It's because I love you guys. Men and women are different. I could spend a lot of time here, but as you know, my time is about gone. Let me give you a few things just briefly. I'm not going to go through my slides, but let me just say to you this. Men and women are different. It's obvious. We know that. We understand that. There are things in our culture that are trying to fight against that though. The transgender movement being one of them that wants to do away with gender, wants to allow males who are claiming that they are females to go into girls' locker rooms. That'll be one of the things we'll have to face eventually with the NCAA interaction. You have people who have radical feminism who are trying to do away with marriage entirely because they see marriage as something that is evil and oppressive to women. You have things that are fighting against what God has created and what God has designed. You even have universities that are discouraging the use of he or she. Uh, University of Tennessee encourages the use of Z, Z-E. The University of Kansas Student Senate has banned gender pronouns when writing legislation. And the University of California has six gender options to choose from. I'm not gonna go through the list because one of the words that's on the list is probably not a really good word, but Six gender options to choose from. That's the society you live in and the society that you're growing up in. Here's here's what I want to say to you to conclude. God created you. He created you for his glory. God created you and he created you in his image. God created you and he created you male or female. This is where you find your worth. This is where you find your purpose. This is where you find your satisfaction. 
Because all you need is Christ. You say, well, you've talked a little bit about marriage. What about those of us who are single and don't want that pressure? God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Paul said, remain single even as I am. Jesus was single. There is no pressure for you to get married if that is not what God has for you. The pressure should be for you to be most satisfied and so satisfied in Jesus alone that you don't need anybody else. It's at the point that you don't need anybody else that God may, in fact, say to you, I have this person for you. And he may say to you, remain single and keep serving me. Either way, be satisfied in Christ. Today's message is a message of good news. It is a message that each one of you and me, created by God. We're created gloriously in his image. And we're created male or female. And that makes all the difference. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you. Father, we thank you that you did create us. Thank you that you created us in your image. Lord, we thank you that even though we failed and rebelled against you, that God, you loved us so much and that you displayed your glory in such a way that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sins so that we might be reconciled to you. Father, we thank you that we know one day you're coming again to set everything right and to have a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And Lord, that one day things will be as you intended them. And God, we will be able then to find our complete satisfaction in you and to joy you forever. So God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And God, we give you all of the praise and all of the glory for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.